Hi, welcome to the Grumpy Strategist, episode four. I'm Michael Shoebridge, and I'm talking with Dr. Marcus Hellyer. Marcus, hello. Hello, Michael. It's great to be here. And hello to our listeners who have, despite all the odds, shown up for the fourth episode. Yes. Thanks, everybody. Right. Let's get into it. We're going to talk this episode about three things. We're going to talk about the restructure of the Australian Army that's just been announced by the Albanese government, the difficulty in capability transitions in fleets with the Australian Army's earlier-than-expected retirement of the MRH-90 Taipan helicopter just announced, and then finish off with Prime Ministerial Travels, the upcoming travel of Prime Minister Albanese off to America twice and maybe Beijing once. So, Marcus, starting with the Australian Army restructure, the Defence Minister and Deputy Prime Minister tells us that this is a an outcome of the strategic review, and it's exactly the kind of army that Australia needs. What's it look like to you as, as a shape and a plan? Well, Michael, I, I, I try to put a positive spin on this. I know you have a, a rather grumpy view of this, but I'm trying to put a positive spin on it. So when I look at this, I go, well, the DSR said we needed a more deployable army. So the DSR had this strategy of denial in the archipelago to our north. And when I look at this, I sort of hope that this is about shaping the army so it can play a role to contribute to that denial strategy. So Mm -hmm. a lot of the media has been about, well, this is about moving the army from the south to the north. Well, it was already in the north. I think the vast bulk of it's already in the north. To me, it's about taking the the army and restructuring it so it is going from this planned Beersheba structure of three quite heavy brigades, which unfortunately it's not getting the army for. The armour for, yeah. Yeah, out of the, the DSR. And turning it into something, three different brigades, only one heavy brigade and two much lighter brigades that theoretically at least should be more deployable. But, but isn't I... this the army that we had before Plan Bashiva? Because Bashiva was all about making three of the same brigades all based around heavy armour. There is but a this back, is back, to, the, to, back to the future. Yes, yeah. there is a back to the future kind of element to it. Yes, I would agree much as you know we've said before there's a bit of a back to the future aspect to the whole dsr or almost back to a dibian kind of defense of australia construct so this this looks to me like the 1987 defense white papers army with long-range missiles uh, to be based out of Adelaide. That's what it looks like to me. It, it does look a bit like that, I have to say. And the other thing I have to say is a lot of the key elements of this new construct we don't have yet. Much as when we set up Plan Beersheba, we didn't have a lot of the hardware that was meant to enable that construct. So now we've got this new construct, and, you know, I'm trying to be positive about it, but some of the things we need to make that work, such as amphibious lift to give it that mobility in our region, those things are yet to come. So and when might they turn up? Because this idea of littoral operations, you know, having landing craft able to move the army and put it ashore in places in the archipelago in the South Pacific, you need the landing craft to do that. How close are they to turning up? Well, I don't think we're very close for either of them. So there are two 
projects in Defence's investment plan for a small type landing craft and then there's a larger one that should be able to be a bit more independent, a bit more autonomous, able to reach out further into the region. And as far as I'm aware, neither of those projects has reached second pass. So the government hasn't picked a winner. Defence hasn't started building those capabilities. So again, there is that sort of back to the future element of we're going to restructure the army for a new purpose, but we're still looking down the track for the, the hardware to make that work. Maybe I'm maybe I'm wrong here and you can correct me, but when you say this is the army out of the Defence Strategic Review, these projects for watercraft and long-range missiles, they predated the Strategic Review, didn't they? So they were already in the plan. They've just stayed in the plan. The real post-Defence Strategic Review change is to cut the heavy armour part. That's that's the new bit here. Yes, well, we're all aware that the number of infantry fighting vehicles was cut from around 450 to 129, and with 129, you can't have that Plan Beersheba constructor where everybody gets some of them. So so this is where we differ. I'm trying to be optimistic. You're sort of going, being a realist saying, well, what else were they going to do? Because they don't have the, the hardware for a Plan Beersheba kind well, of construct. And- so they're just making the best they can out of a bad deal. Well, and they're forming an innovation unit that's going to be based down in Adelaide. But again, that to me is avoiding bigger structural change because they'll then be able to say, oh, yeah, all that uncrewed stuff, uncrewed ground vehicles, drones for for the ground force, that's what this new innovation bunch are, are playing with. But they're not rolling it into their force structure. So I think they've avoided technological change and they've had their desired heavy armoured future taken from them and other than that it's the army we've always had. Well it's not often I meet somebody who's more cynical and more pessimistic than I am Michael but your grum factor is very high today and so I'm not getting good vibes out of you from you. Well I, I would say I think it's a positive to have an army that will have the equipment to move itself around the region together with airlift from the Air Force and bigger sea lift from the Navy. So it's a positive to be structuring, to be able to move and sustain the things you have. That was a big flaw with Plan Beshiva. But apart from that, this just seems to me to be an initial response to the cuts to the Army from the strategic review. Well, I'd agree there that I think it is still certainly a work in progress. But you mentioned the Army is meant to be more mobile now and move around the region. I think it's going to be very hard to do that without any helicopters. And the other big Army story this week is Army essentially doesn't have a utility helicopter fleet anymore. And uh, so... Mm. Well, this is a surprise. It's not a surprise. I... I thought from the time of the crash, and I said it at the time of the crash, that the type bands would be unlikely to fly for the Australian Army again, just because the Blackhawks that were on order and the investigations and then the decisions about the investigations, given there have been two recent crashes, March, fortunately no fatalities, and then July, four fatalities, the timing just didn't look like the type bands were going to get back into the air. But I think the problem you're bringing up is this is a fleet transition from one helicopter type to another and the graceful transition plan was meant to be over the whole of 2024 there'd be a handover from functioning type N helicopters to growing Blackhawk numbers. Well we're in 2023 
and that's all not happening. Well, yes. So capability transitions are always difficult, very hard to transition from old system to new system without there being some dip in capability during that transition. Basically because you just don't have enough people, enough resources to run the old system and the new system at the same time. And so at some point there will be a dip. What you don't want to have happen is a catastrophic drop in capability to the point you have nothing. And we seem to have hit a point where we have nothing. Mm. The government has said that we've had three Blackhawk helicopters delivered. So we've gone from a fleet of 40 MRH-90s and we're down to three Blackhawks. Well, three, three of anything is not a capability. So you look at that and you go, well, gosh, can special forces do a hostage recovery operation? I'm, I'm not sure. Probably not. We certainly can't do an amphibious operation with no helicopters very hard to do battlefield mobility you know through the air with only three helicopters in the entire army so you've got you've got chinooks and of course there's another transition that hasn't happened yet from the tiger attack helicopter which has similar reliability trouble to the taipan to the apache so you've got chinooks tigers that aren't really terribly functional at the moment and then the retirement of the mrh-90 so you're right, that's a big gap because you don't just need helicopters, do you, to, to have an operating fleet of Blackhawks. You need a pilot simulators, you need trained pilots, and you need a logistics system. Now, some of the pilots can be trained in the US. Maybe some of the simulator work can be done there. But you've got to have a functioning logistics system because I haven't seen the crash inquiries into the Taipan crashes, and I'm hoping the public will get to see those. But part of that's going to be logistics trouble, I'm pretty confident. So you can't start flying the Blackhawks without a really solid logistics chain in place. Yeah, it's, we, we haven't seen any kind of public report of what happened. And those investigations tend to, when done properly, point out a range of things. So it, whether it's human error or a technical error or a maintenance failure, they tend to point out deeper issues, deeper cultural issues. And so that may be one reason why the government has decided not to put the, the Taipan back into service, because they've just realised that the, the deeper issues around that capability just can't be fixed, which does raise the question of why have we been going down this path for 20 years when we haven't really got a viable capability. But Yeah, well, I wonder if, you know, but for these crashes, would the army and defence have just struggled on with bigger systemic trouble in the Taipan fleet? Well, these are very interesting questions. I mean, I'll, and that's why it would be very good that when the investigation is finished that we do get a, a public version of it because whether it's in Australia or overseas, there tends to be much deeper issues that cause these kinds of events. And that may be the case whether we're operating MRH-90s or Blackhawks. Well, well, that's why I think it's so important to get the March and July uh, reports about the accidents released because airworthiness is best done through transparency and trust and public confidence is enhanced by transparency. If defence and the government don't release these reports, then that puts a question mark over how they're going to operate the replacement Blackhawk fleet. Mm -hmm. So, but in the immediate term, we don't have a capability. Yes, the Chinooks might be able to fill part of that, that gap, but they have a different role. You know, well, you're and, not going to fly a anyway. Chinook over Sydney to do a fast repel 
counterterrorism job, are you? Or you know, fly it out over an oil rig off the northwest shelf? Probably, probably not. So there's big questions there around what kind of capability will we have? I mean, I think the public would be very interested to know, you know, can our special forces do a hostage recovery operation? I think state and local governments will be very interested to know what assistance can the ADF uh, provide in the upcoming bushfire season? Well, you're right, because the MRH-90 was a utility helicopter, wasn't it? It was moving people and um, supplies around the country, including to assist the civil community in times of natural disaster. It's, It's played a very big role in bushfires, in hurricane relief. So there's a very big question mark there. If you look in the portfolio budget statements, according to that, we're only meant to have five Blackhawks by the end of this financial year. Mm. So an M5 is still not a capability. Now, retiring the MRH-90 has freed up resources, so it's freed up people and freed up dollars, so maybe we can accelerate that process if the US can provide helicopters off the production line sooner or potentially loners from the US Army fleet. But that's still going to be accelerating, and and given that there's just been two crashes, you don't want to rush all the measures you've got to have in place for the new fleet. Uh, Don't forget... The Blackhawks, there was that crash up in Townsville when two of them collided during a training mission. So Blackhawks aren't risk-free, and that means that that setup has to be done with due care, and you probably can't accelerate everything about that. Well, I agree, and that's why those capability transitions in general, there's there's a dip in capability because it takes time to ramp up the new capability to, you know, the, the, the full capability. Well, one lesson out of that, though, if you think helicopter transitions are hard, think about the Collins submarines to the Virginia class and then AUKUS submarine, and think about the Anzac frigate transition to the future frigate. Both those transitions seem to me to have the rubber band of the aging platform, the Collins and the Anzac, stretched as far as it can possibly go. And so technical problems like we've seen with the Taipan, just are more likely in an aging platform. And that makes me wonder about the robustness of the transition plan for pretty much the entire Royal Australian Navy. I I agree entirely, Michael. This is an issue I've been thinking about a lot over the last five or six years. So the in some sense, the transition from MRH-90 to Blackhawk should have been a relatively straightforward, relatively low-risk transition. Now, obviously, anything involving military aircraft has risks, but we're moving from a well-known, well-understood capability that was not at the end of its life, had a broad international user community supporting it, moving to another mature platform that we understand reasonably well with a large international user community. And we're operating a variant of it with the Navy anyway, the Seahawks. So it was it's even a bit more known. So it is it should have all the pieces you would have thought would have been in place for a relatively controlled, straightforward transition, and yet here we are with no capability whatsoever. So then you look forward to these bigger transitions that you've mentioned in the surface combat fleet and the Navy submarine fleet. Those have risk written all over them. We are moving from very aging capabilities, essentially unique. We are the parent 
Navy, their orphan capabilities in that sense, moving to unknown futures in, in to some degree. Certainly, Ooh. you know, the the Hunter class is no other user for a, for that configuration. Still a long way off. Similarly, Virginia class for us is a completely new kind of capability. Uh, and so I don't want to sort of be alarmist, but you go, are we one serious accident away from having no submarine capability? You can't say that that's not a credible scenario, though. Farncom had a fire on board. A second fire. Fire. <laughs> second fire. And that's now. It's got to be in service 10 years, is it 15, is it 20 years from now? So this is this is the fragility in the Navy, and it's really been brought out as a public policy issue that needs planning and action now by what we're seeing with the Army helicopter failure of transition. Yeah, I think this is probably a topic we can devote an entire episode to in the near future because I'm not seeing the kind of risk mitigation activities you would want to see to prevent that major gap occurring. No, well, it's making me think, you know, the uh, transition to the Joint Strike Fighter. So the Air Force had F-111s and classic F-A-18s. They were both ageing, just like the Collins and the Anzacs. And the Joint Strike Fighter schedule was slipping, just like the Hunter Frigate. And who knows about the Orca schedule? And defence just stayed with the plan. No, we don't need anything else. We'll just keep running the ageing F-111 and the ageing F-A-18 and the JSF will, will be on time. It wasn't on time. It got later and later. And it was only the intervention of a minister against defence advice that forced the super hornets on the Air Force that managed the transition problem. And so there's nothing like that happening with the Navy. And also it's a, it's a harder thing to do, isn't it? How do you get short-notice surface combatants? You can't order them like an aircraft. Well, you can't, and that's why people writing about this review of, of the Navy surface fleet coming up with different ideas, they reach different ideas because there is no clear way forward. There mm. is no clear way forward. So you, you can cancel the front end of the Hunter program to free up money because cancelling the back end of the Hunter frigate program doesn't give you any money until the late 2030s and we need money now. Well, if you cancel the front of the Hunter program, what are you going to get instead of its place? In its well, you've place? got nothing because you've eaten all the time already and you can't just buy off a production line. So the risk around fleet transition, that's a strategic issue now for Australia and I think the Navy has it in the biggest way. And the Navy hasn't yet shown it has a plan to reduce the risks rather than just notice them. I agree. And I know the government and defence will say, well, we do have a risk mitigator for the uh, Navy transition or the, the submarine transition because we're going to have the visiting US and UK submarines coming. But to me, that's actually the plan A. That is not a risk mitigator for plan A, because that is part of it. Mm. Similarly, the Collins life of type extension is not a risk mitigator for the transition because that is already now baked in. Well, you need both plan those a. things to happen and work as expected for this to, to all go well. Yeah, so they're, they're not a, a, a fallback no. for plan A not working because they're part of plan A. In fact, we've, we've spent so long achieving nothing in the submarine space that we've had to play our get out of jail cards. So the Collins life of type extension was always our 
our strategic risk mitigator, aka the get out of jail card, for schedule in that submarine transition. Mm. But it's already been required to be. It's already complete. We're going to do two boats, then three, then four, now all six. And it's pretty clear that all six isn't going to give us the time we need. So so I think, you know, when Defence looks at this, it goes, oh, we do have risk mitigators for that transition. We've got the life of type extension. We've got the visiting US and, and UK SSNs. It'll be okay. But they're part of the plan. And it, it's a high risk transition, even with those measures in place. That's the yes. point you're making. Yes. Yeah. And each of those measures have their own risks. Yeah. And well, interestingly, that probably gets us to the last part of the podcast, yeah. which is Mr. Albanese and where he's off to over the rest of this year. So he's got two trips to the US, one in November to APEC in San Francisco, but an earlier state visit to President Biden uh, later this month, 23rd to 26th of October. And then a potential trip that's been announced to Beijing sometime before the end of the year to somehow celebrate the 50th anniversary of Gough Whitlam's trip, the uh, other Labour icon, mm. when he established diplomatic relations with Chairman Mao. So it'll be Albanese with Chairman Xi rather than Gough with Chairman Mao. Yes, well, yes, paying due homage to the Labour pantheon is, is very important for Mr Albanese. So I think he will will like to go to Beijing, though we have to note he hasn't actually gotten a formal invitation yet or certainly hasn't been announced. No, so I wonder, why don't we deal with the Beijing visit first, because we've started on that. I wonder, will Mr Albanese's uh, approach in Washington have to be moderated by having an eye to the Beijing visit. Because if he's too on the front foot about the security challenge and the strategic and economic challenge of China, when he's in the public discussion with President Biden, he'll probably say a lot of clearer things in the closed meetings. But if he's too on the front foot about the China challenge publicly, that could put the Beijing visit in doubt. And I just don't think there's any way Albo doesn't want to get to shake Xi's hand this year. So there's that. Uh, the other thing, I think, is what has the Australian government had to do to get this meeting? And it seems to me the Australian government's had to give a whole lot of things to Beijing and has got not much in return. So we'll hear uh, it's all about the management and getting the ministerial meetings back that's led to this and has led to resumption of trade on coal and barley. Maybe wine will be a triumph before the end of the year. I think these are all actually on Beijing's terms and they have nothing to do with the tone and professional management of the relationship. So, you know, think about the WTO case on Bali. We gave that up. We were going to win it. There's another one on wine that the Australian government is likely to give up to get Beijing to back down on wine. There's a real value in getting legal findings against Beijing to show that it uses trade as a weapon. Giving up the cases means nothing ever happened. Look at the Philippines. The real value to them of getting that arbitral tribunal win in 2016 is it gives legitimacy to their claims in the South China Sea and it makes China's actions illegitimate. WTO cases would make Beijing a clear practicer of economic coercion. Giving them up is a gift we're giving to Beijing 
and it's something that other countries then can't use. I, th- I think I broadly agree with that, Michael. Like, I, I understand the sentiment that having conversation is better than not having conversation, but if to, to have that conversation, which I think will be a broadly empty conversation in the first place, if you are basically saying, yeah, we'll do it on your terms, I'm not sure what the point is. Because the other thing is, is are we really going to say we're going to stop operating in the South China Sea? Are we really going to say we're not going to keep pursuing AUKUS submarines? You know, so, you know, China is certainly not going to get any big wins out of it. They will get those kind of eroding kinds of wins of you know, scratching away at us, or, you know, so dismissing the WTO well, they get cases, some you know, so... ratcheting wins. They also get a sense of disunity between partners and allies. So right now, the Biden administration is having a real arm wrestle with Beijing over technology and trade and military challenge. So we're seeing US ships and aircraft right in the middle of the South China Sea. We'll probably see joint patrols with the Philippines, Japan and Australia and the US. We saw Commerce Secretary Raimondo come back empty-handed from Beijing after after Blinken, the Secretary of State, came back empty-handed. They may or may not have a leader meeting uh, in APEC. I doubt it. I don't think she is going to travel to San Francisco. But they're at a low point in their relationship. And the EU-China relationship is at a low point too. So it probably suits Beijing to show that they can play nicely with a friendly government like the Albanese government. Well, I I think you can probably say that the CCP has realised that wolf warrior diplomacy isn't working. So now now they're trying to be nice. Yeah, they might get some photo opportunities. They're not going to get anything big. So Well, and their values are not going to change. Now, on the flip side is... We we have this meeting and then a week later, a Chinese fighter plane harasses a, an Australian P-8 over the South China Sea. I mean, mm. that is that going to change? Yes. Well, I, I think that's, you know, Beijing's playbook is can we have dialogue that is empty and can we use it somehow to place, to get leverage to stop you doing actual things in the world that are against our interests? Because I'll, I'll hold the meeting as a hostage. You know, I, I may not have the meeting with you. And that'll show you're not managing this relationship. So don't act against my interests or I'll turn the meetings off. The other thing I don't quite understand is that as a result of China's economic coercion, we were actually forced to diversify our markets. We were forced to be less lazy and actually diversify. And that's been a good thing for us. So why do we actually want to turn the clock back? Yeah, well, that's the contrast, isn't it? So the why is China having a difficult time with the EU and with the G7 nations and the US? It's because they've all agreed on a policy of de-risking their economic engagement with China. So they're pulling back on their economic engagement. And it looks to me like we're piling back in because if the coercion, active coercion ends, we're happy to suck up all the market risk again to sell them all the things that they've hit us over the head about. So we're out of step with our partners and allies on this mm-hmm. one. But I, I do think there will be a common theme in the two cities, so in Beijing and DC, when Prime Minister Albanese goes there, and I think AUKUS will be one of them. So I mm. suspect he will get quite a lot of lecturing from his Chinese interlocutors over AUKUS, but I think there will hopefully be some more constructive discussions about AUKUS 
in DC. In particular, how's it actually going to work? Because Ooh. so far, we haven't actually seen a implementable plan about how AUKUS is going to work. No, and I would say if AUKUS is raised as a negative in Beijing, that just underlines why it's an important thing, because it is about deterring the Communist Party of China from using military force against others. So so it's a good thing if they've noticed it. But in Washington, I wonder how much space there is to talk sensibly about AUKUS right now, because Washington is in the middle of another arm wrestle about funding the federal government. They can't even agree on a, a bill to fund the Pentagon or um, give Ukraine funding at the moment. The most they've been able to do is cobble together a deal that funds their government operation for another 45 days that lets them have another interminable arm wrestle within the Republican Party before they even talk to the Democrats. So it's a reasonably dysfunctional, self-obsessed Washington that Mr Albanese will be landing in. Plus, what we're seeing is that if, if you're a Republican who wants to behave in a mature way, if we define keeping the United States government functioning as mature, uh, you, you can lose your job. You know, so McCarthy could lose his job and get booted out by his own colleagues for, for something as basic and straightforward as keeping the American government functioning. Well, I mean, that's how dysfunctional yes, Washington is. And accepting any Democrat votes to do that. So thinking about this as it applies to AUKUS. So AUKUS is a long-term strategic initiative that requires hard decisions and resources applied because of those hard decisions by the three countries, by the UK, US and Australia. And to me, we'll hear a lot about you know, 100 years of mateship or partnership and the alliance being stronger than ever and climate change being added to it. But if, if Washington can't agree to fund the Pentagon and can't agree to fund Ukraine, we have to think to ourselves, how are we going to make AUKUS durable and how are we going to make sure that Washington funds everything about AUKUS? And, you know, I've written about it, you've written about it, the challenges on the Pentagon and the US submarine force are growing, not lessening. This self-absorption of Washington is a strategic political issue from Mr Albanese and Richard Miles and Penny Wong and Treasurer Chalmers. It's not something to be pushed off and laughed off to say, but the alliance will solve all that. Uh, this is where credible plans from the government about AUKUS and real decisions and real money on the table, beyond what we've seen so far, that to me is the only way of managing the growing risks in AUKUS. Well, you've taken the words out of my mouth there, Michael, because I would agree with that in, entirely. Uh, I guess on one positive note for AUKUS and AUKUS SSNs. We saw this week that the UK government signed a contract with BAE for the detailed design of the AUKUS SSN. So that's roughly a $7.5 billion Australian dollar contract. So we are seeing some tangible things there. I will say I am still very sceptical of the timelines that they will get into construction by 2028-29, but at least there is a contract which will fund things to happen. So at least there is some progress yes. being made there. Yes, and interestingly, we, we better finish up. I think we're out of time, but I think the BAE contract around the AUKUS submarines gives a little bit of wriggle room for the Australian government to make some bigger decisions around the Hunter because, of course, BAE is the contractor for the Hunter 
and this is another bone being thrown to the dog that maybe lets you trim the size of the big hunter bone they're already chewing at. The hunter bone. Hmm. Well, I, I think we're in a terrible situation with hunter, basically because if you want to free up money to do something different, you have to cut the front end of the hunter program. So that means, well, we move from not having the first hunter class frigate in 2032 to 36, 38, yeah. who knows when that is, and you've got to do something to take its place. And at the moment, we are finding that any shipbuilding project in Australia is is high risk, taking a lot of time, not delivering. And, and so I just can't see anything good happening in this space. To me, the answer of if you want capability sooner, you have to look at something other than ships. Yeah, and that probably will be true, you know, with a difficult transition for the Collins and for the Anzacs you start to have to look for other options. So long-range strike that's airborne starts to look like the only remaining get-out-of-jail-free card, and maybe that's something for us to talk about in a later episode. Marcus, thank you so much for the chat today. Thank you, Michael.